Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, uh, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. The reading of The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. The word of God speaks to us. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is God's word to us. All right. Well, good morning. You doing okay? Okay. Happy Mother's Day. It's good to be here with you guys. Um, my, uh, I love that video in the, we showed. What we know from that video is that Will Gaines and Carly Gaines' son was on there like four times, and he loves food. He's really thankful, Carly, that you give him food. Uh, my son this morning, we were doing Mother's Day around before I came into church, and my youngest son is six. His name is Asa. And uh, we said, you love your mom because, and he says, when I'm sick, she takes me to McDonald's and lets me watch a show. And what, we, what he means by that is, well, I wasn't really sick, but I still got out of school anyway, so she took me to McDonald's and I got to watch a show, right? Uh, you, moms, you moms give amazing gifts. So hey, listen, before we jump into God's word, let's pray and uh, ask that God would attend us in this time, and then we'll get to, we'll get to work. Sound good? Our Father, we come, we come in behind our Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, thank you for pointing us to him. And we come in his name, Father, Jesus. And we ask that by your mercy that you've given us in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit now, would you help us to understand this passage? And would you help us to grow up into it? Would this be far would this be far from black ink on a white page? And would this be what your word is, living and active, able to form us and to build us and to shape us as your people in the world? Where this sermon is deficient to meet the needs in this room, as we come in today, I pray that you would fill up what's lacking by your spirit and would you meet us? We are encountering you our living God, through this sermon. So would you put a guard over my mouth and anything that would be unhelpful today and what, what would remain be only that which is helpful. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Amen. Well, this, uh, just this last week, I was watching a TED Talk on, on YouTube, and it was a talk this lady was giving uh, around body obsession versus body positivity. And uh, as any TED Talker would do, she stands... Um, confident. She stands convicted in the thing that she's presenting. She stands compelled by her own argument, clearly, and she wants you to be compelled by her argument. And so she's standing around this topic of body obsession versus body positivity, and she says this thing that we hear sort of in our moment a lot, but she's saying it around having a more positive view of our bodies. She says with full conviction and with full bravery, we are more than our bodies. We are more than our bodies. And so far as it goes, 
I happen to agree with her, but I think it is true. I also agree that we live in a moment of body obsession. It's a broader cultural moment of body obsession. Maybe, maybe that's always been the case. Maybe that people have always sort of been obsessed with our bodies, but it's def- it definitely feels acute in our moment. Hey, just think for a second about the number of ads that you get on the daily for dieting hacks. The number of ads that you get specifically in this moment for fitness plans for a better summer body. Think about the pervasive cultural conversation right now that on the one hand says that we aren't what our bodies necessarily say that we are biologically or in terms of our gender. That some would say that we're more than our bodies in that way. And on the other side of that same conversation, people are saying that we should have the freedom to change our body to match whatever our felt identity is. So on the one hand, our bodies are nothing. On the other hand, our bodies are everything. They are nothing to the point that they can be changed and fluid into whatever we want them to be. They are everything in the fact that they give us an identity, right? At the same time, we're trying to rid ourselves of our bodies or ignore them, especially what we don't like about them. And it just seems that in our moment, all over the place, we're trying to find a sense of self through our own body. Whether you're totally progressive in sexual ideologies or whether you're conservative in sexual ideologies and traditional sexuality, there's still a sense in which all of us are doing the same thing and trying to find a sense of self rising and falling based on what does my body say about me, right? What does my body say? And here's my contention this morning. It's not as though that our bodies are useless. God has made us embody beings, right? Our bodies are wonderful. They're part of what it means to be an image bearer of the Most High God. Our bodies bear dignity, both male and female, right? This is according to God's wisdom and design. But my contention this morning is that we are obsessed, we're consumed with a vision of the wrong body. We spend our days obsessed and consumed with a vision of the wrong body. Let me say it this way. There actually is a body from the positive side. There is a body that's able to give you a sense of self. There is a body. There is a body that's able to form in you a healthy sense of personal identity. Who are you? What are you for? What is your destiny? There is a body that can answer those questions. There is a body that can even give you an important sense of what the person sitting next to you is for. Not just you, but it can answer questions about the person sitting next to you, what they're for, what their destiny is, and what their dignity is about. There is a body that can do all of those things for us, but it's not yours. It's, it's not your body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's going to give one of the strongest and most well-known metaphors for the church. And he's going to tell us that the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. He picks up this metaphor in the part of this larger conversation that we've been in, in chapters 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians, talking about the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to build up the church. And what he's been talking about to this point is that the Spirit leads the church in its spiritual gifts. The Spirit leads the church toward unity and not division. So wherever in the church of Jesus Christ you see division, whatever's going on there is not the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not the work of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit, Paul has been telling us, actually leads us to interconnectedness, not isolation or independence. Wherever in the church of Jesus Christ you see a one who says they're a disciple abstracting themselves from the church, whatever's going on there is not of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead us away from the church, but toward the church. The other thing I would say is that the Holy Spirit leads us toward mutuality or toward solidarity, being lockstep with each other, not toward levels of superiority. People saying, I'm just deeper or I'm just farther along. When someone says that, what they're outing themselves as is prideful and immature. It leads us toward mutuality and solidarity. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So notice where he starts in verse 12 of chapter 12. He says, you know, just as the body is one, but it has many members, and all the members of the body, even though they're many, there's a lot of parts to your body, it's one body. That's how it is with Jesus, he says. That's how it is with Christ. So the question becomes from the outset of this passage, so wait a second, are we talking about the body, our body, our physical body, or are we talking about Jesus and his church? And Paul would answer that question by saying, yes. Are we talking about the body, or are we talking about the church? Paul says, yes. And he says, I want you to understand something about the church, and I want you to understand this by some things that you already know, some things that you already observe through your common experience with your personal body. And so when he's talking about the church here, this is really important, he's not talking about the capital C church. I probably wrote that as a backward C. A capital C church. He's not talking about the capital C church of all Christians across all places. Remember, he's writing this letter to a particular group of Christians in a local congregation in Corinth. And so when he writes this and he talks about the church, he wants you and I to understand this the way that they would have understood this in terms of the person sitting next to you. Not invisible Christians out there or across the other side of the world, but for the persons that are sitting on the same aisle with you, the same pew as you. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, so now that we're a body, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So here's what Paul is saying. Look around. Look around you for a second. Around you are people from all sorts of different backgrounds, different social backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, different religious backgrounds even. This is true for us in this room, and it should always be true as much as it was true for the, church, for the Christians in first century Corinth. He says they had Jews and Greeks. These were people who were hotly uh, opposed to one another on racial boundaries. They were even hotly opposed to one another on religious boundaries. You also had slaves and free, different economic statuses and different social statuses. What he's getting at is wherever the local church is gathered, wherever Christians are gathered together under the banner of Jesus all over the world, what you have are people who would never otherwise be gathered together in the same way. Wherever the church is gathered, we're gathering together under an allegiance to a common and same Lord. You realize this room, we can't hardly agree on anything if you were to ask us just a random poll. But yet we're gathered together under an allegiance to a common Lord. And what we have in the church 
I don't know if you think about this as you come to service on a Sunday. This is probably a casual, normal thing for you, but what you have in this room, what we have in this room, is a miracle. It is a straight-up miracle. It, it, is, it is nothing short of miraculous. The church, what's happening here, is about the good news of Jesus that's on a collision course with the rich and the poor. The good news of Jesus is on a collision course with the politically left and the politically right. The good news of Jesus is on a collision course with white people and black people and Native American people and Asian people and Latino people and on and on with the morally religious and the morally irreligious. The fact that we're all gathered in this room together is nothing short of a miracle. For all of our failings, not only are we calling on the same Lord, we are calling on the same Lord from our varied backgrounds together. We're, we're doing it together. And we're learning to love one another from all of our different places because we recognize a common Lord has loved us from all of our different places with him. If he's like that to us, we should probably be like that to other people who he's also loved. Now, how on earth... How on earth could something like the church happen? Like, how could it happen? Listen, if we were just to take a vote on the color of carpet in the sanctuary, we couldn't agree. Some churches actually divide over colors of carpet in a sanctuary. And yet what we've come to do, if we can't agree on the lesser, we've actually come to agree on the greater. We've all come to agree that there's a Jewish man in the Middle East who 2,000 years ago died and resurrected, and he's the only and true hope for this life and eternity. We can't agree on carpet, but we've agreed on a Jewish man? How does this happen? Like, this is a miracle. How does this happen? He tells us in verse 13, because there is one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, who has baptized us into one body. God has done something. A collision course has happened with all kinds of different people, so much so that he says it again at the end of verse 13, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. The only way the church happens, our gathering, varied as we are, is because of the love of God the Father being made known to us by the good news of God the Son, and that being applied to us by God the Holy Spirit. And he emphasizes that this is one spirit, not many spirits, but one spirit, and this is one body in order to make clear that the church of Jesus Christ is no place for favoritism. He emphasizes oneness here, so there's not varying degrees of more or less for certain. No place for favoritism. This is no place for special privileges for some people and not others, and that's the reason why Paul was writing this section of Scripture, because that was happening in Corinth. Yeah, that was happening in Corinth. They had some in the church that were touting, I actually have a greater spirituality than some others in the church because I have the gift of tongues. And Paul was writing to dismantle that. He's writing to tear that down, that somehow there's a greater spirituality or a greater degree of baptism going on because of a tongue's gift. And Paul's saying, no, we were all baptized into one spirit. We've all received that baptism as Christians, and it was one spirit. And so before we move on to the bulk of this passage, I want to make real clear something that Paul's done to this point in the passage that's really important. He's given us a plumb line 
a baseline for true spirituality. And that's really popular in our age, right? Like, lots of people want to be spiritual. He gives us a plumb line for true spirituality. True spirituality is not a particular gift. It's not a particular baptism. He says we've already received that. True spirituality is a particular confession. Back in verse 3, he says, Jesus is Lord. True spirituality is a particular confession and a particular manner of life. And that's chapter 13 that Sean will get to next week, namely love. Who cares what gift you have in the Spirit if you're a jerk? Who cares what gift you have in the Spirit if you're, if you're off-putting to everyone around you, right? So true spirituality is a particular confession and a particular manner of life Jesus is Lord, love, and that helps us operate as a body. And so he gives us this metaphor, all with the intention of tearing down division in the church. That's why the body metaphor is there. No division in the church. He gives us this metaphor to pull us away from two common pitfalls when it comes to spiritual gifts. So on the one side, there's the pitfall around spiritual gifts for someone to look at their life as a disciple and say, I just don't matter. Like, I just don't contribute very much. And Paul's saying, that's a pitfall I want to pull you out of. And the other pit is a, is a pit that no one thinks they're, the people who are in it don't think they're in it. It's a pit that says, I really matter. And those people don't think they're in a pit. Paul's saying, you're actually in a pit for thinking that you really matter, and I actually want to pull you out of that pit. So Paul's addressing in this passage with the body a deflated self, and on the other side, an inflated self. Let's pick up with the deflated self first in verse 14. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, You know what? I'm not a hand. I don't belong with the body. Hands are so awesome. Well, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if an ear should say, Well, I'm not an eye, so I I can't belong to the body. Eyes are amazing. Well, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. In verse 17, he says, and if the whole body were an eye, that's the stuff of horror movies, right? If the whole body were an eye, well, then where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, also horror movie, then where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And if all were a single member, then where would the body be? So as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And so far from there being no, uh, far from a person not mattering in the church, here's what Paul is shouting to us in this passage. I mean, literally, if we could have a megaphone, you are here, Christian, precisely because you do matter. You do matter. And he gives that without stereotyping or profiling with no asterisk. You, Christian, matter. Regardless of what your contribution is, great or small, listen, Christian, You were bought with the blood of Jesus. You matter. God cared enough about you to hunt you down, outrun you, outpace you with all of your opposition that you've put up against him. He still hunted you down with his love and refused to let go. You matter intensely. You matter intensely. The cross of our Lord Jesus proves this. He didn't waste a single ounce of his blood. 
when he sacrificed his body for the church, it was for every member of the church and not a single drop was wasted. You matter. Look again at verse 18. He says, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body. And so God determines the contribution of each member in the body, just like with our physical bodies, each one of them, as he chooses. It's God's prerogative. So you can't say, you literally can't say you don't matter. You can't say that. You don't get to decide that. You also can't say that your contribution isn't much. You can't say, well, my church wouldn't recognize if I were there or weren't there. That doesn't make you any less a part of the body. That doesn't make you any less a part of the body. Listen, you're not a part of the body of Christ because of your doing in the first place. (laughs) You didn't show up and go, you know what? I think I need to be a body member. No, 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 no. You are doing everything other than that, and God won you over by the one spirit through his one son, right? And you also can't decide what part you get to play in the body. You matter. And so for those of you who don't think you're very important, the vision of the church as a body is literally given to you as an encouragement. Like that, that's why this metaphor is given. It's being offered as an encouragement to you that you're critically important, and it's being offered to the rest of us so that we could see each other that way. So we could see each other that way. Look at verse 25. He says, I'm giving you this metaphor so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have, notice this language, that the members would have the same care for one another. Not more care for important people and less care for less important people, but the same care. (laughs) The same care for one another. So just real fast before I move to the next, next section here. The person sitting next to you, who's a Christian. That person sitting next to you who's a Christian has been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. They're a big deal. That person is a big deal. That person is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. That person has been gifted by God the Holy Spirit to continue the ministry of Jesus in the world. They are a big deal. Big deal. Now, the second category is the inflated self. And again, no one raises their hand to say, I'm the inflated person, right? But you know who you are. You think of yourself as pretty important. So as much as Paul's trying to encourage those with a low view of themselves and their gifts, he's also working to humble the inflated person who sees their gifts as really important. Pick up in 21. He says, so the eye can't say to the hand, I don't have any need of you, you measly hand. Nor again does the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think of less honorable, we actually bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts actually don't require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. And so in the same way that no Christian can say, I don't matter, it's also true that no Christian can say, I really matter. Or any Christian can say to those group of Christians over there, they really matter. According to the logic of the body, a bicep or a quadricep can't say, you know what, we're amazing. Like we can like curl stuff and like lift stuff and squat stuff and 
deadlift stuff. We're amazing. You know what we don't need? A liver. We just don't need it. That's ridiculous, right? Because many of the most vital parts of the body that actually serve to keep a person alive are actually the parts you can't see. And they're the most vital. And this is what Paul means when he says the parts of the body that we think are weak, God's actually given those parts greater honor. When he talks about the unpresentable parts, which is actually a reference to sex organs, when he says we actually bestow greater dignity on those with modesty and with covering. And so here's what Paul, Paul's not now suggesting that we should take spiritual gifts and equate them with certain body parts in order to find out who the sex organs of the church are. Like, that's not, it's not what he's doing. But here is the point. The point is that we would see every, every gift as valuable. Every person as valuable. And here's why. Because we have a tendency to idolize certain gifts. We have a tendency to platform and pedestal certain people that we view with certain gifts and put them up there, and we have a certain uh, tendency to, to elevate certain roles or acts of service in the church, and Paul's saying, stop. Like, stop doing that. And the reason he's trying to tell us to do that is because our tendency leads us to unhealth. It actually leads us to hurt. So let me give you a few questions to drive this point home. Sean Evans is amazing. He leads this church through networking in the city and rallying people to meet the needs of the city to be a testimony of Jesus. He's got amazing gifts of, of service that way. But what's more important? Pastor Sean Evans rallying people to love the city or the people in our downtown congregation with CDLs that go out to the city rescue mission and drive the bus for people to attend church on a Sunday? Which is more important? Let's try it again. Which is more important? Pastor Andrew's gift to preach and teach on a Sunday or the people who quietly gather every Sunday before the services and pray that the word of God be preached with power? Which is more important? Which is more important the team that leads us in worship up front to sing and use their musical skills and, and all the rest to, to guide us in praise unto our God or the people who sit behind that booth that you only know if they're there, if the sound is bad or the video screen is bad. Which is more important? Which is more important, those that we sent out from Frontline South to go plant a church in India, Mumbai, India, that are doing radical things in the name of global missions for Jesus or the people that you've never heard their name and you probably will never hear their name, but out of their generosity, they are funding a church on the other side of the world. Which is more important? Which is more important? A community group leader who opens their home every single week to lead discussion and spiritual formation or a quiet member of that group who on a Tuesday night noticed across the room another member of the group who seemed depressed, and they quietly texted them, invited them over for dinner later in the week to pray and just ask how they were doing, which is more important. Hey, I just ran down five questions, all of which were dumb questions. Categorically dumb questions. There's not one side of either of those questions that are more important. Both sides are needed immensely. Both sides are needed. 
Listen, there's only one head of the church. There's only one head of the church. All the rest of us gather around him and serve whatever we possibly can at the pleasure of the head in order that the body might continue the ministry in the world. This is the exact point he's making at the end of the chapter. Notice in verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, and then second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. You're like, well, which of those is more important gift? Bad question. He goes on to 29. So then are all apostles? Rhetorical, no. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Will do all possess the gift of healing? Will do all speak in tongues? Will do all interpret? No. And that's the point. We need all of it, and our unity as the people of God, as the body of Christ, is formed not because we're kind of alike. That's boring. That's homogeny. That's flatness. That's sameness. Our unity is actually built around our diversity. It's actually built around the fact that you're not like me, and I'm not like you, but you can't be you without me, and I can't be me without you. We can't be we without any one of you, and you can't be you without we. We need all of that, if you can track down with that. So I'm going to end today with three things that it means to be the body of Christ, real quickly. Three things it means. Number one, it means Jesus loves the church. I know that people have a complicated relationship with the church. I know it. But Jesus loves her. Jesus loves her. Hey, let this, like, this just blows my mind. Just candid with you. The church has failed in every generation at multiple times. We're, we're mostly aware of the way the church is failing in our generation, right? Because we're living in it. But at no point has Jesus ever flinched from giving the church the title, my body. You would think for all of our failings, he would be like, hey, cut out, cut out 2 Corinthians 12. You guys don't deserve that anymore. But he hasn't flinched. He hasn't once tried to like pull down his post from Twitter, so to speak. Like unflinchingly, he'd go like, yeah, they're failing, but they're my body. And one day, she'll be perfect. One day, she'll be perfect. Jesus loves the church. And the man who's writing this letter to the church in, in Corinth, Paul, he had an encounter for the first time with the body of Christ that he could never forget such that he could now write a passage like 1 Corinthians 12. If you know the history of the apostle Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul. He was a zealous Jewish man after the traditions of the Jewish people, and so he hated Christians. He was a serial murderer of Christians, martyring many because of their faith in Jesus. On the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9 tells us, on his way to, with murderous threats, Acts 9 tells us, to kill more Christians, he has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus who like intervenes on him on the way to go do this. And Jesus shows up to him in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. This is fascinating. It says, and falling to the ground, he, Saul, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, this is red letters, Jesus speaking. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. You say, wait a second, Paul was going to kill Christians, but Jesus says he's persecuting me. So Jesus is so connected to his people, like a head is connected to a body, that whatever happens to his people happens to him. 
This is fascinating. Jesus is so connected that whatever belongs to the head now is shared with the body. Whatever belongs to the body is now shared with the head. This is the magic of union with Christ. This is the, the mystery of union with Christ that Jesus is so attached to us that he's like, that's, that's happening to me. It's like mama bear instincts. That's happening to me. This means two things at once. Number one, Jesus knows intimately everything that's happening with you. There's not a single detail of your life or the church that he's uninformed about. It's beautiful. He takes it personal. The second thing it means is an encouragement to you and I for the way we ought to treat one another. What kind of dignity would you offer the man Jesus if he were standing in this room? You'd roll out the red carpet. That's the same kind of dignity that you ought to offer to his body, his people, his people. The second thing that being the church means is this. Your participation is critically important in the church. This metaphor carries out to our ongoing participation. Let me just talk biology for a second. No part of your body can survive without being connected to the whole. It, like, can't happen. A severed body part is a dead body part. Like, that, that's, just, that's just medicine. And so there's no such thing, and I, this, is, this is prophetic in Bible Bell, Oklahoma, where you can say you're a Christian but have no connection to a church. There's no such thing with a healthy discipleship to Jesus that's severed from his church. There's no such thing. And this is one of the saddest things that our pastors across all of our con congregations would talk about when we were trying to track down members during covid those days we couldn't meet as a church, those months we couldn't meet as a church. Then the church starts meeting again, and many weren't ready to meet again, so they didn't meet, and then we're still meeting, but they're still not coming because they're not yet comfortable. And 12, 14 months go by, we're still calling these members, and over time, many of them not attending church would eventually pick up the phone to say, hey, I, I'm actually not a Christian anymore. And this isn't me like judging or adding that. I'm just saying like, it's not rocket science to feel like how they wound up at that conclusion. If you think as a healthy disciple, I'm going to eject from the church, and then 12 months later, I'll be just as healthy 12 months from then than when I was the moment I ejected, you're just mistaken. A severed body part is a dead body part. And listen, I'll just say this. I'm not saying that because I'm trying to pad the stats of our church. Jesus is really clear, like, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. Like, I don't need to pad the stats of the church. I'm saying this as a desperate plea for your own spiritual vitality. You, you, need, you need the church. Here's the last thing, and this is, this is really beautiful. Being the body of Christ means that we continue the ministry of Jesus in the world. Have you ever noticed the way the book of Acts begins? The book of Acts begins with this amazing verse that for me, for years, I just blew right by. The book of Acts begins this, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with, this is the gospel writer Luke, so he wrote Luke, and now he's writing his sequel, Acts. I dealt with there all that Jesus, what? Began to do and teach. That word began is massive, and we typically fly right by it. In that one word, here's the finish, Luke is telling us that Jesus really meant all that he said. 
that his work wasn't finished with his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. That wasn't the end of the work of Jesus. He had just began. He had just began. Acts 2 opens with the giving of the Holy Spirit. The rest of the book of Acts is about the same Holy Spirit that filled Jesus in his earthly ministry, now fills the church to do and to carry out and to continue all that he began to do. The very same Spirit now fills us. This is what Paul means in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, our text today. Now you, collectively, plural you, you are the body of Christ individually, you're members of it. So if you want to know, how does Jesus still do stuff in the world? It's through you, Christian. It's through me. It's through every Christian who names the name of Christ through the church. We are the representation of the presence of Jesus still in the world. That's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. You say, well, for us to really do that, we're going to need some help. And you're right. That's why he's given us God the Holy Spirit. Well, we're not just going to need God the Holy Spirit. We're going to need him to equip us with stuff. Yeah, that's spiritual gifts. Well, we're not just going to need spiritual gifts. We're going to need, like, other people. I can't do that by myself. Yeah, that's the body, the church. We continue the ministry of Jesus in the world with the very same spirit that empowered him, with the very gifts that the spirit gave him to do, to do the stuff that he did, and with brothers and sisters, that he's on a collision course to win until the day that eastern skies breaks and the trumpet blows and he comes to take his body home. That's what's happening. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's pray. Our Father, I'm asking that because of this word today, you would to help us think seriously about how we live on our block, about how we show up at work, about how we interact with people on Wednesday afternoon. Not that we would be perfect, but that we would remember like, as Christians, as the body of Jesus in the world, we are the representation of your ongoing presence until the day you return. Will that change the way we talk? Will that change the way we forgive people? Will that change the way that we're patient with our spouses and with our kids? Help us to be a right representation of your presence. And I'm asking, Holy Spirit, <laughs> we can't just sort of have enough like want to to do that we're going to need a fresh filling Holy Spirit would you fill us afresh to look like Jesus in our community there is one hope for the world and it is the Lord Jesus there is one hope for the secret insecurities and sadness of the neighbor on our block and it is the Lord Jesus would you help us to care like that and figure out how our presence might look like yours and continue your ministry in the world. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus our King and the church agreed and said, Amen. On the night that Jesus was eventually betrayed and sent to fake trial, he first had a meal with his disciples. He took the bread 
and he broke it. And for all that we've heard today about being the body, Jesus says, this is my body. It's broken for you. He says, take and eat. He took the cup and he raised it. He says, this is my blood. It's poured out for you. This is about a new covenant, a new promise. I'll be your God and you'll be my people because this is about the forgiveness of your sins. baptized followers of our Lord Jesus. You're welcome to come to these tables and receive fresh grace to be his body in the world. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian today. The invitation for you would be come to Jesus. Like consider what it would look like to cross the line of faith. Come to Jesus before you would come to this table. We'd love to talk with you about what it is to become a Christian. So followers of Jesus, come, receive, Take the elements back to your seat. We'll take as a family today. Come as you're ready.